Hey guys, what do you get when you cross yourself, our podcast, and the decision to support our podcast on Patreon? You get three things that should always be together, like peanut butter, honey, and bananas, like Simon Garfunkel and Paul Simon's obvious annoyance at Art Garfunkel's ability to be just as famous as him without writing any songs or without playing guitar, just being born with good looks and a wildly beautiful singing voice. And did I mention beautiful voices? Because you can head to patreon.com slash ontarioloud or ontarioloud.ca and subscribe for as little as $3 a month. It goes a long way to paying people who help this podcast, like Aisha Anwar, who you're going to hear on this episode. So get excited. Head to patreon.com slash ontarioloud or ontarioloud.ca today. It's exhausting for being mocked for just existing. A good apology would just encourage people, people of color, people of underrepresented communities, that they should use this and instances like this as encouragement to get more involved in politics and to make space for themselves at the political table, to not be afraid to share their experiences because at the end of the day, like no one will understand what we experience like we do, not a privileged white man especially. Welcome to Ontario Loud, a podcast about politics, public policy, and current affairs have between recovering political staff right here in Ontario. On today's episode, we have Sam, Kate, Alexi, and myself, and appearing for the first time in a right good discussion, Aisha Anwar, a student at Ryerson University and an all-around wonderful person who helps Ontario Loud make our social media good. Aisha joins for a discussion about the Justin Trudeau, Brown, and Blackface scandal and the federal election in general. And we just want to say a huge thank you to her for volunteering to contribute to this one. It really was the highlight of the episode for me. In addition to that really horrible scandal, we will be covering the much less discussed but definitely equally exciting release of the 2018-19 Public Accounts of Ontario. Lots of new info there on how Doug Ford has been stretching the truth about the seriousness of Ontario's financial problems, justify cuts that might not actually have been necessary. So let's dive right in. We've got a great show for you today. We'll be talking about the media just discovering that Doug Ford may have inflated the deficit a little bit to the $15 billion count uh, that we all come to know and loathe. But first, I want to check in on the federal election. I don't know about you guys, but so far I have been inspired to date by the stirring exchange of ideas and policies that Canadians have been subjected to. (laughs) Just kidding. It's a hot trash wire. Yes, we have to start with the biggest story, a photo published by Time Magazine of the Prime Minister in brownface at a party where he was teaching at an elite school in Vancouver. By the time you're listening to this, it won't be the hottest take. It'll have been out for a couple of days. We're actually recording on sort of day two of the story being out there in the world. You, the listener, may be in a totally new world where new developments have happened. And before getting into this, I want to say something about our podcast. We are and tend to be a pretty white podcast at the moment and a pretty privileged one. And in thinking through how to cover this, I want to recognize that and that we are a very small part of the white dominated political establishment that helps enable and normalize the kinds of things that we're seeing this week. I think it makes our coverage a little bit less good than it could be. And we need to try and change that in a real way. And so small though our pod may be, that's something I think that I want to work on. And with that in mind, I just want to go around and maybe ask like, what are we feeling at this moment? Having lived with this photo for a few days, what impact do we think it should have and what impact do we think it will have? I don't know about you guys, but I've been having this discussion like a million times over on text message, in chat groups, on my phone. And I feel like I've heard a few, like I think people are a bit divided on how this cuts, particularly in places like the the 905. And actually, I think interestingly, I've heard such different things about how different immigrant groups will react to this. But I don't think there's any question that this really hurts them. And I think that it'll really hurt them in a lot of writings that are NDP liberal swing writings, because it just 
gets so squarely at the heart of what Justin Trudeau has stood for as, you know, someone who stands up for immigration and for diversity. And unfortunately, too, it's something Justin has, Justin Trudeau has stood up for kind of against other international tides, against Boris Johnson and Brexit, against Donald Trump. And it's a bummer to see it all unravel this way. Yeah, definitely a bummer, Kate. Uh, it's, I don't know. I mean, I start with, I try to think like, you know, am I surprised? Should I be surprised? On the one hand, uh, everything you said about Trudeau's uh, persona uh, makes this feel like a particularly big violation of everything that he's tried to tell Canadians for, for many years. On the other hand, there's very little reason to think that any privileged white person in society at this point doesn't have these kinds of things in their past. So it's it's tough. I mean, I think at the end of the day, I was surprised by it. But the more I think about it, I guess I think I shouldn't have been. And that's just an interesting reflection on how I think about politicians and the assumptions and judgments that I make. Hopefully, this is a learning experience for a lot of people. But yeah, I mean, to me, it goes back to that, the hypocrisy, I think, that is the the most difficult piece of this to swallow and just how hard the just how much the campaign has been about candidates so far and people dropping out because of you know things they posted on social media previously and it's hard to it's hard for me not to agree with the criticism that if any candidate who wasn't a party leader did this they'd be gone so fast there's a double standard my immediate reaction as someone who's like advocated for Trudeau and has worked hard for his team was just frustration in the beginning. I've defended him and his government over and over. And I think I was just embarrassed. Like people were asking me what I thought and I didn't know how to react or what to say. And I think like as a person of color, I, I do believe his apology and like the things that he's done since he's done that. And I believe that he's sorry. And from people that I've spoken to and things I read, I think a lot of people will forgive him and he can overcome it, which is great. But I guess my major question is like, why hadn't this come out before? And I can't help but think that this is just about the election and how it impacts Trudeau. And I had referenced Andrew Shear's very colorblind statement that he made about it. But for a lot of people, for people of color, it's so much more than that. Yeah. One of the things that has bothered me a little bit in just like the initial coverage and sort of like the Twitter sphere that has emerged in, in the days since is that because we are in an election, there's this immediate tendency for just almost every partisan liberal that I know. And I've noticed a strong white trend in this partisan liberalship to sort of be like, well, he apologized and people can make mistakes. And by the way, have you heard of Andrew Scheer? Have you heard that there's a guy named Andrew Scheer who's running, who's conservative? And he's going to be much worse. And have you seen his candidates? Again, like a lot of people who have seen Trudeau uh, in a particular light standing for particular values that are really important. And this is a, it is a hurtful moment for a lot of people. And I wish a lot of the liberals that I knew were, uh, and some are, it's not everyone, but like, I wish some of the liberals that I knew were a little bit better at being circumspect about that. Like, I, I know about Andrew Shear, guys, like, I'm not really interested in, in hearing about him at this particular moment. Yeah. I'm not brushing race under the carpet just because there's someone who's worse. Yeah, exactly. At this point now, he's done two apologies. I imagine by the time that we've done many more, Aisha, you brought up the fact that you found it credible. Is there a path to a, a, a meaningful apology in this moment? And I'm wondering like, what we think that looks like. How does one meaningfully apologize for something like this? Um, I think I really appreciated how uh, Jack Meat put it because he related it not necessarily about the election, but more about how it impacted people like 
the very next day if they like went into work or something. Um, so I appreciate what he said. Listening to him, it just like brought up the idea that it's just, it's exhausting for being mocked for just existing and for looking like this. It's very exhausting. A good apology would just encourage people, people of color, people of underrepresented communities, that they should use this and instances like this as encouragement to get more involved in politics and to make space for themselves at the political table, to not be afraid to share their experiences. Because at the end of the day, like no one will understand what we experience like we do, not a privileged white man, especially. And I think this is just a reality check that proves that. So just like shedding light on that and encouraging people to like get more involved in politics. Yeah. Yeah. I've been over the past couple of days sort of telling people like, I've heard a lot of people sort of comment about the first apology uh, being unsatisfactory. And that might be, it sort of came so hot on the heels of us learning about it. The analogy I've kind of been using is it's like kind of like if your partner was like, hey, so I cheated on you. It's wrong. And I know it's wrong. And I'm really, really, really sorry. And I really, 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 really mean it. And it's sort of like, that actually might be true in that circumstance, but you still are going to need something more prolonged and a more meaningful demonstration of commitment because I think the news is really hurtful and, and breaks a particular image that you might have had. And so I don't exactly know know the path, but I, I like you, Aisha, was really moved by a lot of the stuff that Jagmeet Singh was saying. Jagmeet Singh has invited Justin Trudeau to talk, and I'm sure there are many people in the liberal war room who are saying that this is a trap and uh, that he shouldn't do it. but. I don't know. I kind of hope that this is an area where that I think requires maybe a little bit more than just strategy. Yeah, exactly. I mean, that was what was so amazing about Jagmeet Singh's statement was that it wasn't really strategy. It was just a person talking about his own experience. If there's something good that comes out of all this, it's that I feel like race was simmering just beneath the surface of this election the oh, whole yeah. time. There was just so much that was manifesting in this like ick way that just wasn't the headline. It just was not comfortable and a lot to do with how Jagmeet scene was being treated that I just, just was not sitting right. Oh, yeah. Like CTV News basically printing hate speech as a headline. Oh, my God, yeah. Yeah. And then, and then everyone's sort of tiptoeing around uh, Bill C-21. One thing I don't think we ever got to talk about was um, uh, Maxime Bernier and um, the CPP making it to the debates. Because the threshold for that, if I'm not mistaken, is proving that you're electable in two writings, which oh my God, they're electable in two ridings? Like there's just so many areas of, for concern that I feel like we were just brushing off in the way that we're all Justin Trudeau brushing off the idea that we could put on quote unquote makeup. And so I'm at least grateful for this moment and that we can all go, holy shit, this is a problem. Let's take a hard look at race in this country and how it plays into our politics. And we're not some great heroes on the world stage or our own stage. And we have a lot of work to do. Yeah. Yeah. And I'm glad we're kind of talking about the broader election uh, now, because I think even before this broke, this election felt bad. And for a number of, of reasons, uh, some of which we've talked about. Alexi, you mentioned earlier that part of the criticism of Trudeau is that he has been pointing to the moral failings of uh, conservative candidates in particular, and this has been a big part of the liberal strategy. If this election has been more about process and people and less about maybe policy than in the past, A, do we think that that is a true statement, I guess, and B, why do we think that is and, and what can people do about it? 
I think I agree that I agree with the question. I think it I think it has been in my memory, I guess, more about process and people than past elections. That said, we are judging it by the first quarter of an election campaign, where I'm sure the high points we remember from other election campaigns could be much more substantive because we simply haven't had the time to get into more substantive issues just because the parties are doing what they often do, which is slowly releasing more substantive things to talk about as the campaign continues. So with that caveat, um, I have been pretty frustrated with whether it's the coverage or the way that the parties are going about it. I'm not sure. I think part of it is the willingness of both the media and the parties to um, fight the election on the basis of what they want people to feel that they stand for, not what they actually stand for and actually say and do. And I just think that that's part of perhaps laziness on the part of people involved on the receiving end of these messages, ourselves included as Canadians. But I think it's also just an indication of growing cynicism um, with democracy. And yeah, I don't know. I don't know how to fix it. I don't know. I don't know what's going to happen with the rest of this election. This stuff with Justin Trudeau has certainly amplified the sense that this is about which leader do you feel you can trust more, uh, which has been the message that everyone seems to be pushing forward. I hope that that changes and it becomes much more about, for example, on racism, what are we actually doing as a country when it comes to indigenous reconciliation, when it comes to supporting underrepresented groups in uh, higher education when it comes to the disproportionate number of people of color who are struggling in society and the, the ongoing impacts of historical oppression that's happened in this country. So those kinds of questions, I think, are much harder and much there's sometimes a higher information barrier for people to access them. But uh, I hope that we get to that stage desperately because continuing to talk about these more shallow leadership or you know, whose character do you think, blah, 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 blah. I just don't think it's uh, healthy in the long run. I do wonder, though, if we're looking back at past elections with a bit of like rose-colored glasses and or if the change in the media landscape gives us actually just a better portrait of how the majority of Canadians have always engaged in election debate. And I guess I mean like, people live busy lives. Like I'm not sure most Canadians ever were engaging in the sort of thinky debate that maybe the people who read the newspaper every day were having. Like I just I guess I'm not sure that the takeaway from the twenty fifteen campaign, for example, for most people wasn't I'm sick of evil Harper. Justin seems nice. A guy peed in a cup. That was gross. You know what I mean? Like, and maybe we will get to a more substantive place to your point over the next four weeks. I just, I'm not convinced it's dramatically worse than in the past. That's not to say we shouldn't aspire to better in our democracy, but I guess the parties have rolled out substantive policy things in the last couple of weeks and the news media has engaged in those things. It's just been there's been other things that people also have been paying attention to. And maybe it's just the like memification of the way people consume information now. I don't know. But yeah. that's just a long form way of saying I'm not I'm not sure it's worse than it was before. I mean, I personally slightly miss when the 
weirdest thing that happened to a candidate's reputation in a debate was that they peed in a cup. Um, <laughs> that, that that felt uh, a, a little bit more better than white nationalism. Yeah, but uh, also still gross. Um, if you've stayed with us through that depressing election segment, you're in for a real treat. For the last few minutes, put the federal election out of your mind, take a deep, rejuvenating breath, and come with us on a journey through the 2018-19 public accounts. Yes, that is right. As required by law, each September, the Ford government released Ontario's audited financial statement for the 1819 fiscal year, so that it's last year. This year, they chose to do it on Friday the 13th, a coincidence or a subtle reminder of their commitment to slashing spending. <laughs> um, that was terrible. I'm going to credit Alexi White for that joke. Um, but listeners may have caught some coverage of this release with the Toronto Star reporting out that actually Ontario's deficit was not $15 billion, as Ford has claimed it has been for a number of years. This $15 billion was used to justify the cuts that have uh, become the government's signature brand. Alexi, I want to turn to you and ask, how did we get here? Why is this the moment that the media latch onto the story? Can we start like at the at the very beginning? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, I'll start with a little bit about the public accounts, just because it is a relatively dry topic that uh, is, I promise, fascinating, but sometimes you need a little bit of information to get into it. So at the most basic level, everybody knows about the annual budget the government puts out, um, where they say how much they plan to spend in the upcoming year. Um, so the easiest way to think about the public accounts is just that it's the opposite of the budget. It's what happens at the end of each year to say, here's looking back where we actually spend money. Um, and so the public account spends a lot of time looking at what did we budget? What did we actually spend? And you know what's the difference? And then there's a lot of explaining of what are the reasons for any discrepancies, those kinds of things. So it's a fascinating look at what, what actually happened in government in the previous year. Unlike the budget as well, the Auditor General reviews and signs off on the public account, which is important. Um, and also, so if you're thinking about this from inside the government, this is not a perfect analogy, but if you think about the budget as being a, a really big deal for the Ministry of Finance, a, a big moment for the Minister of Finance to uh, sort of lead the coverage, the public accounts is similarly a big deal for the Treasury Board, uh, which controls the, the purse strings, and also the Treasury Board President. Um, though, of course, the government has much less control over what the public accounts actually say. So while there is a little bit of a front section that is kind of them uh, repeating their major messages about uh, the fiscal situation and all the great work that they're doing. It's uh, a much less of a, a communications document than, say, the budget. So the eighteen nineteen year is especially interesting. Um, and the reason for that is that the liberal government uh, was the one that released the 2018 budget and governed for the first three months of that fiscal year. So it wasn't until um, basically the end of the first quarter that the PCs took over and then began to put their own stamp on things. And so we have an interesting roller coaster ride of a year where, where we have so many different things happening all at the same time in the world of fiscal policy. And so it's really interesting to go back and trace what happened now that we have the final numbers. Listeners may recall that back in July of 2018, the uh, government created uh, what they called an independent financial commission of inquiry, or rather the independent financial commission of inquiry tabled the report back in July on Ontario's past spending and accounting practices and decided the budget deficit was not $6.7 billion as projected in the Liberal budget, but in fact was $15 billion, which is substantially more. Um, the Ford government then released the fall economic statement a couple of months later, which um, they do every year in the fall, uh, with a revised deficit of $14.5 billion, so it had slipped slightly. And then the 2019 budget, which includes a, an interim spending uh, estimate for the year in which the budget is released. And that estimate had the, the deficit down to $11.7 billion. So we can sort of see the trajectory. 
Uh, now we have the public accounts, and we know the true number ended up being much lower at only seven point four billion. So it's a huge swing from the fifteen where we started. Yeah, this really enraged me when I saw it in the Star because. Uh, the liberals, when they were in power, when we were uh, working in government, said the deficit would be $6.7 billion. And it turns out at the end of all of that, that whole journey, it is $7.4 billion. So pretty in the ballpark. It is much closer to what we are projecting than the PCs projected. Um, it is not $15 billion. So does this just mean that all of that work that the PCs did over the past year, was that all bullshit? And I do have a right answer in mind here. <laughs> Of course, it was always a setup, right? And they were almost transparent about the fact that they created this number to, you know, whack everybody with it as they made cuts that they wanted to make anyway. I think in some ways, the story is maybe more complicated than it should have been six and now it was seven because like they, the revenue numbers from taxation blew away expectations even like more than the, the liberals forecasted for sure but then the revenue also was reduced because of the cap and trade changes so i just think in the overall scheme of things uh the tories at every step of the way made choices to make the number bigger and are now going to uh now that they've feel like they've created the narrative that they needed reverse course and start doing everything they can to make the number seem small so that, you know, ahead of the 2022 election, they've returned to balance and they're fiscally responsible. I just hope that uh, people see through some of that. And I do think um, the public sort of consciousness around uh, the deficit numbers being politically cooked up is pretty high. So like, I don't think most Ontarians can follow all the minutia of what Alexi just walked through, but I think there's a sense that this $15 billion number was obviously always made up, which I shouldn't say made up, intentionally inflated through different accounting treatments. I'm glad that sort of the chickens are coming home to roost a bit on that. Yeah, I agree. I, I, there was certainly a large part of this, which was they were full of shit on the, the $15 billion deficit number, unquestionably. The one thing that is worth pointing out in the other column to their favor is this uh, huge windfall in revenue that seems to have appeared in the end of the year. Um, basically, the revenue projections went up by about $5 billion compared to the last time they published a check-in on how we were doing. That seems to be driven by just an honest underestimate of income, corporate, and sales tax revenues all being above projections. I mean, when you look at how big the total budget is, they were only off by about 3%, but that makes a huge difference to the bottom line. Part of the reason you can't pin all of this on the PCs is because the liberal budget numbers were also off on uh, how much revenue we'd be taking in this year and by basically the same amount. So in fact, if the liberals were, were reelected and had implemented the 2018 budget, the deficit last year would have been about $2 billion rather than the $6.7 billion that was predicted at the time. Um, and that's, again, because of that windfall in revenue that nobody saw coming to some extent. So, yeah, hard to uh, hard to say, but it's, it, it is a very complicated uh, mixture of bullshit and blind luck. One of the interesting dynamics here, I think, is like with any other government, this would be a great problem. Like your economy, the economy is so booming that revenue came in way above projection on corporate and sales tax. And... That has allowed you to come in closer to your savings targets or spend more on things that 
you care about, uh, be they tax cuts to rich people or you know whatever they want to do. But the Ford government framing of this, they raised so much negativity, I guess, both about the state of the economy, the state of Ontario's finances, and I guess the fact that this revenue is uh, the product of an economy that was mostly generated probably during the liberal time in government that it creates a, a, a bit of a framing issue for them. And you do wonder if like some of the cuts that they've made that have hurt them politically, you know, class size maybe being a good example, they would have done it now that they would know where they're at, right? Because yeah. I think they were always on this track of uh, try to balance in like the year before the election. And now they've just like significantly been able to accelerate that due to the new projections, right? So anyway. It's just so hard now too in the face of all those parents and children and everybody and across all these different contexts where they've made cuts. It's like, and sorry, why? (laughs) Right, yeah. Where's the imperative that you were yelling from the rooftops about? Yeah, it's like, congratulations, we're we're at balance, but also the teachers are on strike. Like, I think that the last thing is going to impact way more votes than the first thing. I mean, you know, you'll have your 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 Vic Fidelli fanboys of the world, you know, saying, yes, we're finally at balance and it's really at balance because we're discounting the pensions and we are, Fair Hydro is no longer a, a weird accounting thing. I, I want to dig into this a little bit uh, and look at like spending a little bit. The PCs basically restated the last year's budget and then introduced a new budget. So Alexi, you put a good frame for this at the beginning that 1819 was a weird year because the year started with a liberal budget. PCs were elected, put a halt in basically all of those plans and introduced their own budget. The liberal budget initiated a ton of new spending and new initiatives in lots of areas, education, healthcare, you name it. The liberals spent money in it in 2018. And I guess when we look at what the liberals were planning to spend and what the PCs actually did spend, what are the highlights that stand out? And what does it tell you maybe about where each party um, was kind of planning to go just sort of beneath the fiscal policy air war that seems to be happening? Yeah. So overall, overall, I think it's it's what, what stood out to me. One of the things that stood out to me is that if you look at just how much the liberal government spent two years ago, so in 2017, 18, and then you look at how much the PC government ended up spending last year in 18, 19. You would think that based on the coverage that the PCs would be spending a similar amount, maybe even less than the Liberals had spent the previous year. But in fact, they spent $6 billion more than the Liberals spent in 1718. And that's after accounting for the accounting changes to pensions and hydro. So this, these are these are comparable numbers that they've published. That's, I think, just a reflection of how much of the Liberal investments that were put forward in budget 2018, the Conservatives actually ended up keeping and uh, deciding to move ahead and implement anyway. Uh, So there were obviously clear things that they didn't like cap and trade, which is a a billion and a half right there in spending that they didn't continue to put forward. But the liberal plan was for a significant new investment in government spending. And the PCs ended up keeping quite a lot of that when you think about what, um, uh, what they spent on last year. So I think it's interesting too, that just to start to think about how much um, political backlash they got for not even stopping spending, but simply slowing the growth of spending to only $6 billion a year more. And then thinking about the future where their fiscal plan has them spending a fraction of that more each year. I mean, we're talking like just over a billion more next year they want to spend. So how do you go from greasing the wheels of, of uh, you know, good politics with $6 billion to suddenly 
pulling back your ambitions and only spending a billion more. Like it, the the hill gets steeper for them moving forward. Some of it is probably due to them front loading announcements to cut future spending. OSAP is a great example of this. Last year, they announced the changes and, and the cuts. And so even though you know like they cut half a million dollars out of OSAP, students are getting less aid, but we're not going to see it, I guess, until 2020 public accounts um, actually impact the bottom line and see that sort of half a billion dollars come out. It's an interesting, I think, sort of case study of a, of a government probably coming into office and finding all kinds of things that they probably realized they needed a, a real plan to cut as opposed to, you know, that they could sort of remove right off the top. Uh, because little things, like I remember, you know, they, they kept all of their transfer payment. You know, they didn't sign any new transfer payments, but they kept a lot of the pre-existing commitments just sort of in place for that year. So a, an interesting strategy. And now that we're in a new year, they're starting to actually implement some some of the the changes that they planned. Yeah, I think it's worth doing a quick sort of tour of the highlights of some of the the areas of spending because public accounts uh, and the budgets helpfully break out spending into at least buckets uh, like health and education and social services, things like that. And health, they did spend um, actually slightly more than even the liberals promised to spend in 2018, um, which seems to me to be consistent with their messaging that they want to invest in some of these frontline services. They talk about health and education, but I would say health is where that's really true, that they are continuing to invest there. Uh, while trying to get the budget, uh, what they would consider under control. You see that continuing into next year. So um, health spending is uh, projected to increase by another $2 billion next year, about 3% growth on that line item. And I mean, that's not actually that crazy. It's not easy, but 3% growth in health is probably achievable because they are willing to spend more money there. And it's, it just means that other places are going to have to get cut uh, because they only want to increase total spending by, by less than $2 billion. Education, similarly, they did spend slightly less than the Liberals promised to, but still a billion more than was spent in 1718. And uh, and again, in the future, I think they want to spend another billion next year, which is about a 4% increase in that budget. So again, it seems doable. And then you sort of get into the, the trickier areas like post-secondary education. We've talked about the OSAP cuts that are coming. Justice spending uh, decreased a lot this year, although next year it looks like it's uh, going to uh, rise up a little bit again. And then social services, I think, is the sort of big, as we've talked about before on the pod when the budget came out, uh, the, the big question mark moving into the future. So they, they managed to shave about $700 million off what the liberals promised to spend in 1819. Uh, much of that was by not proceeding with new investments. So things like canceling the social assistance rate increases, which were uh, more generous than normal. Um, but they still ended up spending $800 million more than was spent in 1718. So for a government that, you know, you've been hearing about uh, cuts to the child benefits, you've been hearing about social assistance, cut musings about changing ODSP, these kinds of things. These are entitlement programs. And when people come to your social assistance door, they, they get paid through Ontario Works or ODSP, for example. So these are programs that tend to increase by inflation or more every year. And, uh, and we saw that happen again in 1819. So the total spending in that area is pretty comparable to a normal year. But next year and the year after, I mean, they're planning to actually start reducing spending overall on this line. So in a line that normally, just by the pressure of people coming to the door, is increasing by more than inflation, they want to reduce spending by half a billion dollars. And that doesn't sound like a lot on a $17 billion budget across social services. But yeah, I mean, it, it, it's going to be substantial for people. And they haven't announced what they're actually going to be doing to get there. So this is an area that at some point in this year, in 1920, they're going to be, uh, they're going to have to be announcing some pretty significant changes to social services and children's supports. 
And this is, I think, going to be hopefully very politically damaging for them um, as long as uh, the people of Ontario stand up and say that these are not uh, the places that they want to see the government trying to balance the budget on the backs of, of the poorest among us. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking back to the, the, the month-long review of children's services that I think is just wrapping up around now that they announced that we talked about in our last pod and I'm really worried about that. One of the lessons that I think I am taking from this overall picture is that like the Liberal government for many years and most years of the Kathleen Wynne mandate tracked towards balance and I think kept program spending uh, fairly stable uh, and actually, you know, in some sectors, I believe underinvested to try and make sure that we were tracking towards balance and seen as good fiscal managers, uh, which is, you know, a lot of liberals think is a good, an important part of the party brand. In the last budget, we kind of went really, really big on a lot of ideas uh, in time for the election. And I think that in seeing the difficulty that this government uh, is having, bringing things back to even the budget before, even the 1718 budget, to the, the point you've made, Alexi, is that if you're in government and you're in a progressive government, like go big or go home, there's, there's a bit of incrementalism to rollbacks that um, this government is sort of encountering, you know, like how much damage they've gotten for the fairly incremental rollbacks they've already implemented. Uh, if we imagine that amplifying, it makes me think there's probably room in the past liberal government to go bigger uh, in previous years and put up even more barriers for a future conservative government to completely roll back the clock. And that's all the time we have for today. Thank you so much for listening. Ontario Loud is brought to you by myself, Sam Andry, Kate Hammer, and Alexi White. Philip Askew helps record each episode, and Aisha Anwar and Harmon Mundy help promote it. Have a question or comment? You can get in touch with us at OntarioLoudMail at gmail.com or hit contact us on OntarioLoud.ca. We will be back next week with an interview with Sam Jeffers, a very cool guy who has a browser extension that lets you know who is targeting you in this federal election. Definitely check it out. Lots of great information on how digital targeting is going to work in the modern age. So get excited. Thank you so much for listening. We will see you next week.